Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. If money affects your life in any way, Money Making Sense will talk about it. Be financially healthy, wealthy, and wise. Here's your host, Heather Kelly. Welcome to Money Making Sense, the show that talks about all things money. Today, we're going to talk a bit about travel and is it worth the money? Joining me today is Rick Steves. He is a travel guru and also hosts a lot of TV shows you may have seen on PBS. Joining me is Rick Steves. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thanks, Heather. Nice to be with you. First of all, I have watched many of your PBS shows. I love them. In fact, you taught me how to pack for my trips overseas, and I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> very nice. That's nice to hear. All right. So one of the things I do want to talk about, I mean, in this day and age, first of all, it's been a couple of years since a lot of us went traveling anywhere, and I personally would love to get back overseas. But with inflation, can I actually book hotels or Airbnbs or whatever on the cheap? Well, cheap is a relative term. You know, it's not never going to be like it was in Europe on $5 a day days when I started out. But you can certainly get a good value if you know what your options are. And when you do think about inflation, remember the dollar has been gaining on European currencies uh, even more than inflation. So we're keeping up ahead of inflation as far as how far your dollar is going to stretch when you go to Europe. Not that it's cheap. But I've never seen the pound almost at par with the dollar for English travel in England. And it's the same with the euro on the continent. So I was just in Switzerland, notoriously expensive country, a couple of weeks ago, having a wonderful time, impressed by how relatively affordable it is. Wow. Okay. Well, that is good to hear. So if we want to go traveling, we might want to do it sooner before maybe things go tip topsy-turvy again? No, I wouldn't even be that frantic about what's the do the strength of the dollar because that's not the issue. I travel better than somebody who spends three times as much as I do because I know how to travel. And I've spent my whole career helping Americans get maximum travel experience out of every mile, minute, and dollar they have for their vacation. We've got to remember that we Americans have the shortest vacations in the rich world. So our time is a very limited resource as well as our money. And we got to use our time smartly. If you use your time smartly, you're going to get the double the value out of every dollar you spend over there. You got to use your, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, these days, Americans are all, you know, we, we talk about getting herd immunity. We've already got herd mentality, so it shouldn't be too big of a jump. <laughs> um, we all do the same thing. We all have this Instagram mentality. We got crowdsourcing. Why is everybody eating at a certain Tex-Mex restaurant in Paris? Well, because it's number one on TripAdvisor, you know? So try to break out of that. The last thing I want to do is go where every every American who's suddenly an expert says this is the best place for hot chocolate in, in Amsterdam. You know, you don't need that kind of crowdsourcing information. You don't want to go where the crowds are going. I, I, and, and crowds are a serious problem these days, especially when you consider the value of your time. Uh, to me, there's two IQs of European travelers, those who wait in lines and those who don't wait in lines. I rarely wait in a line because I know how to get around the lines. Um, so that's you know one of the fundamental skills that I talk about in all of my guidebooks and we incorporate into our tour program for sure. 
And uh, lately, my theme has been on all of this art appreciation. I've got new guidebooks on art. And the whole idea about going to Europe to appreciate the art, you know, we're all going to pay about the same to get into the galleries. But if you bring an understanding of the art with you, you'll get triple the joy out of the experience. So that, in a sense, is a budget tip, I would say right there. Too many people spend a lot of money and they just don't have a clue with what they're looking at. And that's not a good value at all. So you're actually recommending that we get a bit of education before we even get to where we're going. Yeah. If you know what feudalism is, castles will make more sense. If you know what renaissance is and if you know what humanism is you'll know what it's like to turn the corner in florence and see david i mean you are not looking at a shepherd who killed a giant you're looking at you're looking in the eyes of renaissance man david designed by my you know carved out of marble by michelangelo 500 years ago uh, was sussing up the darkness of the middle ages when he looked at that giant he says yes i can do this i can take this guy and I can move Europe into the modern age. This is humanism. This is a breakthrough for Western civilization. This is a realization that the best way to glorify God is not to bow down in church all day long, but it is to recognize the talents that God gives us and then to use those talents to make our world a better place and to live more fulfilling lives. That's a beautiful thing. That's revolutionary. And that's 500 years ago in Florence. That's the beginning of the modern age. So as a tour guide and a travel teacher, to let people look into the eyes of Michelangelo's David and understand what Michelangelo was trying to say to us, that's my challenge. And that's our challenge as people who are you know, wanting to enjoy and appreciate the art of Europe. And that's one little example, Heather, about a whole stream of art that takes us all the way up to our generation. Okay. You are not passionate about this at all. I love <laughs> I it. I can tell. <laughs> I love it because I, for 30 years, I've taken groups on my Rick Steves tours to these places. And I can, I can see when people are overwhelmed. I know how many Madonnas and children a typical American tourist can see before their eyes glaze over. I, I know what it's like to, to be able to walk into a gothic cathedral and not know what gothic is or to know what gothic is before i take a group into a gothic cathedral i will build a gothic cathedral out of 13 tourists right there in front of the church it takes six columns six buttresses and one spire if you got 13 people you can do this and when you build this you see that gothic is a skeleton of support you've got pillars or columns they are supported with buttresses that can fly in with ribs being flying buttresses and you've got pointed arches when you have a pointed arch the weight of the roof and the spire goes out instead of down so you need a buttress in those columns and when the spire hoists herself high above your 12 tourists who are the pillars and the buttresses you've got a strong structure and you've got a skeleton of support leaving the walls essentially free to be window holders to let in all that glorious light through stained glass and that's what Gothic was all about 800 years ago. So when we build a Gothic cathedral and we have a tour guide to explain what is Gothic, then you step into the Gothic cathedral and everybody goes, yeah, I get it. Pointed arches, lots of light. Cool. Nice. Okay. So, I... so can you imagine the fun I had with my TV crew <laughs> rounding up 13 tourists and building a Gothic cathedral as the camera's rolling and then splicing that in as one of the lessons in our new TV series. So, <laughs> so who became the spire? That's what I want to uh, know. It, it was a young woman named Rosie. And she was, I was, I happened to be doing a tour in Florence where I was the, it was a mentoring tour. I was teaching my newest guides how to do a Rick Steves tour. So they were all the tourists. And I had a few moments extra. I had my, my cameraman with us. And I said, okay, you guys, we're going to build a Gothic cathedral. And uh, 
Rosie was the the spire and she was just great. <laughs> nice. So just in case any of the listeners still aren't quite sure by your, you gave a great description. That's good. But if I remember my history correctly and my architecture, isn't Sacré-Cœur in France, isn't that a, a Gothic cathedral? Nope. Sacré-Cœur is Neo-Byzantine. Ooh. And the cool thing, we're thinking, you think of the Notre Dame that's in the island in the middle of the Seine River, that's Gothic. And then... Okay. A, um, just a couple of steps away is the greatest Gothic interior in Europe, the Saint-Chapelle. And that was a church built 800 years ago by the king of France who needed a, a, a decent place to hold what they thought was the crown of thorns. So they built it in six years. So you got architectural harmony there. It's, it was finished the way it was started, which was very rare in the Middle Ages. So it has that cohesiveness. And it is just a cathedral of light. It's just a lantern of light. And the cool thing is when you go there, you walk up a dark spiral staircase and then you enter into this most glorious Gothic space. But the Sacre Coeur is a beautiful church, by the way. It's, it's built on the hill overlooking Paris. And it was built as a thank God anyways gesture after the Germans humiliated the French in, I think, the War of 1870. And the Sacre Coeur is a good example of what's called historicism. And historicism is part of the Romantic movement where European architects were being inspired by other historical artistic styles and rebuilding them in a little bit of an over-the-top way. Yeah, so they have those flying at... buttresses on there. Oh, to... oh, well, you know, all of this historicism is over-the-top. If you look at the pointiest stuff that looks like over-the-top medieval, it's actually neo-medieval. It's from, it's from the same generation as the Eiffel Tower, and it was built in the Romantic Age. And that's a good example of how I've taken points of uh, confusion for travelers and people interested in art and architecture and straightened it out. But historicism is wonderful. And when you think of Mad King Ludwig's castle, Neuschwanstein, you know, the Disney castle, yeah. um, it is. Uh, it looks medieval for many trips. I thought it was medieval. And then I learned what romanticism is all about. And it's a romantic look back at the Middle Ages after the French Revolution was every, when everything was subjected to the test of reason. And now people wanted to let their hearts off the leash and do things that were kind of emotional again. So it really is from modern times that they built these over the top. Look at the um, Halls of Parliament in London. It looks very, very medieval, but that was rebuilt after their Halls of Parliament burned down in the 1800s. And Big Ben and the Halls of Parliament that we see in the news that is neo-medieval, over-the-top, fancy, you know, super pointy medieval built in the same generation as the Eiffel Tower. This is a good place to take a break. When we come back, we'll go more into travel anywhere, actually. Some of these tips are good if you're sticking to the U.S. And we'll talk more about Rick Steves' current PBS series called The Art of Europe. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. 
Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to Money Making Sense, the show that if it affects your life in any way money-wise, we're talking about it. And today we're talking about travel. Might sound a little specific to Europe, but that's because my guest, Rick Steves, has a new PBS series out called The Art of Europe. And Rick, you've been traveling overseas for 40-ish years now? Is that something? Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Well, I'm 67, and I've been doing this since I was a teenager, so that's a lot of years. So you have seen a lot of changes in how travel happens overseas. But I think one of the biggest ones that has taken place is just the last two years with COVID and different restrictions, and some countries had more restrictions than others. And how is it now? I mean, does everybody have to still wear masks anywhere they go? Do we need to show proof right. of vaccine? Yeah. Well, I have traveled through uh, thick and thin through volcanic eruptions and terrorist attacks and wars and pandemics and so on. This is the biggest, biggest uh, hurdle for travel that we've ever had in my my experience. Uh, but now people are going back. I've uh, gone to Europe four times in the last six months. I've had a wonderful time. Um, we, we have a tour program uh, where we take uh, about 25,000 people on uh, Rick Steves bus tours around Europe. We have 40 different itineraries. And our best year ever was in 2019. And then COVID hit. And for two years, my 100 workmates and I had no revenue. It was really a tough time. And this year, we opened the floodgates and all the people that we had to refund their deposits in 2020 jumped right back on. And we've taken uh, 20,000 people around Europe this year on 40 different itineraries. I say that because I've got a good feeling of what is the reality for Americans traveling in Europe during COVID. And of the 20,000 people that have traveled with us, about 3% have gotten COVID in Europe. So it's kind of COVID roulette. I mean, there is a 3%. That's one out of every 33 people are likely to get COVID. Nobody has gone to the hospital. Nobody has needed a doctor's help but all of them have had to isolate. And when somebody gets COVID, they have to leave our tour uh, because everybody tests and everybody wears masks and everybody has to have a co- their shots and their boosters to be on tour. And uh, we find that the tours that have the highest incidence of COVID happen to be Scotland and Ireland. Why really? do you think that would be? Um, what are you going to do in Ireland, Scotland? You're going to go to a pub, oh, and you're you're drink go beer, beer, and you're going to be in an unventilated place with lots of happy people drinking and <laughs> spitting on each other and singing. And it's great fun in normal times, but it's a little risky if you're trying to stay clear of COVID. So, you know, we find that um, there are some areas where you're in a congested environment without ventilation for a long time. That's bad news, especially if you're surrounded people less likely to have their shots. So you can moderate that. I've been to Europe four times and I've, I've been safely to Europe and back from a COVID point of view. And um, I'm just really careful about, of course, being vaccinated and boosted and wearing my mask when I when I should. And um, and it's expected in museums and on public transit and so on. It's not a big deal, but just look around. Europeans are very neighborly because they live in tight quarters. One thing I've told my staff, I work with 100 people here in Seattle, is I don't want to be an expert about where is COVID, you know, strong and weak right now in Europe because it could flip flop next month when somebody's going to go. So we just need to have our fundamental skills. And basically, I would say it's a personal thing. Are you comfortable traveling during the pandemic? And I would just say, I'd put it this way. If you're comfortable traveling around the United States, 
Some people are, some people are not. It's not a right answer. It's a personal choice. If you're comfortable venturing around the U.S., you should be comfortable traveling to Europe. Uh, if you're not comfortable around going around the United States, don't go around Europe. I think Europe is basically a, a parallel situation as in the United States. The problem with being in Europe is if you do get COVID, you need to isolate. And if you have to change your flight home, it can be expensive. So that's something to be mindful of. Yeah. Well, that actually good advice pretty much anywhere. And even before the pandemic, if you actually went to a lot of Asian countries, they were always wearing masks. They've yeah. had sort of been ahead of the curve as far well, as keeping. I have to admit, I was down. like the a lot of Americans, I'd look at Asians with their mask and I'd go, what's with you paranoid people? But now I see the wisdom of that because, you know, uh, we've been careful. I haven't had a cold for three years, uh, probably because I've been wearing a mask and staying away from people. So, uh, you know, I think masks make sense if you're traveling. And it's just, I always have a mask in my shirt pocket and I slap it on when I need to. It's it's not that big a deal. And um, and uh, generally, I don't have it on. I, I just was done hiking in the Alps for a week. I never wore my mask hiking in the Alps. And I was on a barge cruising in Burgundy for a week on the canals. That was wonderful with all sorts of gourmet food. It was a beautiful experience. And I never wore, wore my mask there. But when I'm in Paris on the metro, I wear my mask. I wanted to talk about before we even get to where we're going, because I learned so much from the video that you did about packing and packing wisely, especially yeah. now every airline is charge you for a bag. Even if it's just your only bag, they just now go, oh, we can get money this way because people have to take clothes yeah. with them. So what tips do you have to reduce the amount of luggage somebody is taking with them? Yeah, airlines are going to be getting greedier and greedier when it comes to nicking us for having a bag to check. I think we're going to still be able to carry on bags. I'm very strict and very um, passionate and fanatic about the beauty and importance of packing light. I mentioned we took 25,000 Americans on our tours uh, this year. On a normal year, we take 25,000 people to Europe on a Rick Steves bus tour. Nobody is allowed to check any luggage to take our tour. It's a 9 by 22 by 14 inch carry on the airplane size suitcase. Uh, it's a great way to shape your clientele, I'll tell you that. Uh, there's no reason to have any more than that much luggage. Um, I've, I work with 100 people. Most of them are women. Uh, and all of us just use a carry-on bag. Exactly how to do that is beyond the scope of this um, interview, I think. But I've got a <laughs> one-hour talk about packing light on my website at ricksteves.com that along with all my other lectures and all the TV shows we've ever made, people can watch for free anytime they want. Just go to Rick Steves and go into the uh, you know the TV section and you'll find all of our lectures and TV shows. But um, you know, it's it's not a hardship. It's a, it's a sort of an enlightenment. It's a blessing to pack light. If I had Sherpas, I'd set them free. I, I don't need more stuff. You don't want to pack for the worst scenario. You pack for the best scenario, and then you buy something if you need it while you're over there. I mean, it's worth a lot of money to enjoy the luxury of being mobile and packing light. And, Heather, there's a whole other dimension to this. As it is tough for businesses on either side of the Atlantic to find employees, to staff up, you're going to have chaos in airports. That's going to be unpredictable. It's a part of travel going forward. And, you know, it's hard for people to staff their restaurants. It's hard for people to staff the airplanes. It's hard for people to staff the, the theaters and so on. What we want to do from when it comes to flying is if you don't check any bags, you are at a huge advantage. Mm -hmm. um, so try to just go with carry-on bags and also try to do what you can online in advance. Don't book tight connections and get to the airport a little earlier than what you normally would. That's just common sense to me. And I, I fly around Europe without any stress. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't, other people are wigging out. 
it's no big deal for me because I don't put myself in a situation where I'm going to be getting the worst of that. I don't check a bag. I get to the airport early and I give myself extra time when I'm booking my connections. Well, I have a question on taking just the one carry-on bag on the tours that you sponsor, that you have, which is fine. I actually only travel with one bag. But how long are these tours, these European tours? I mean, how how yeah, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to answer that question in the context of packing because it doesn't matter. <laughs> two weeks or two months, you pack logically. You pack exactly the same: man, woman, winter, summer, north, south, rich, poor. Two weeks, two months. It doesn't matter. I pack exactly the same, and so do the women on my staff. Our tours, by the way, range from. Uh, seven days to 20 days. But really, what's the issue? You have the same toiletries. You you would think you'd have more clothes. Maybe that's the issue on a longer trip, but you don't. You you just wash as you go and uh, you just wear the same shirt a couple of days. Uh, I, I like it. I spend 100 days a year. I've spent a third of my adult life living out of a carry-on-the-airplane-sized bag in Europe. And uh, the last thing I, I want to do is in burden myself with, with too much stuff. Right. Uh, I think I, you <laughs> just lost my mother as a fan. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, but uh, it's tough love. It's tough love. You know, I've bullied a lot of people into packing light, and I've been with them on, on their Rick Steves tours as I was guiding. And I, it's a fascinating thing for me because they go, really? Nine by 22 by 14 inches? That was my cosmetics kit. Nope, that's everything. And I check in with them a week into the tour and ask them, are you okay? You know, because they're kind of stressed out about packing light. And they go, we're never going to pack heavy again. This is really, really a delightful way to travel. Um, so, you know, you can do it. Uh, you'll be surprised how little you can live out of. In fact, it's a beautiful thing about travel is to be less burdened with all the material stuff that we think is necessary that's actually not. And you say that if you do run into an, an occasion where you actually need to buy something because you didn't have it packed right. with you, right. isn't that an added expense that if you just had it with you, you wouldn't need to worry about? It's too expensive from a enjoy yourself point of view to carry everything extra just in case you need it. It's much better to spend 20 or $30 buying something you need over there than to carry it with you in case you might need it. I say that, that you can always buy something if you need it, but I never need it. I mean, I just I just don't need this stuff. It's you got to look at the weather. What weather are you right. going to encounter? You you layer it. On an occasion that you're doing a different kind of travel, you'll pack heavier. If you're going on a cruise, it doesn't matter because you're going straight to the ship. You move onto the ship, and then you it's like moving into a hotel for 10 days. You don't change, so be right. heavy. Move in, hang up all your shirts and your different coats and your mini shoes. That's okay. But if you're traveling, like from city to city every couple of days, that's where you're going to go, Rick Steves, thank you so much for making me (laughs) enthusiastic about enjoying the luxury of packing light. I will tell the story that I was in Venice. It was the same thing. I I think I had two bags. I had a carry-on and a packed bag. When we say carry-on, you always get your day bag right. and then you get your big carry-on. And the big carry-on, that's the 9 by 22 by 14 inch thing. And that's many bags, but there's all sorts of bags and they're almost all made to the spec so you can carry it on. Yeah, but I get to Venice and it's November, rainy season. And guess what happens in Venice when it rains? All the people who sell junk on the street start selling ponchos and umbrellas. (laughs) I actually had a a jacket with me. That wasn't an issue. The problem was San Marco Square flooded. Oh, yeah. 
So and you need hip boots. Y- yes, <laughs> totally. I mean, it literally, right. so I actually had to wind up buying galoshes on yeah, the Venetians. And- Venetians all have their hip boots they pull on when the city is flooding. But they put elevated um, walkways up too. But it's, you know, all the crowds in Venice packed onto one elevated walkway. That oh, I know. It was insane. Different. It was totally insane. And and for the most part, we didn't stay in all the tourist areas of Venice. We like would get right. lost. When Venice. there's low parts of Venice and higher parts of Venice. I mean, St. Mark's Square is the one that floods the first. Right. But, you know, I've written the book on Venice. I've made, I lived there for three weeks making TV shows. I've taken groups there for 30 years to Venice. And I've never encountered a time in Venice where I wish I had boots. Um, I mean, it's it's sort of <laughs> exciting and it's okay. I'm getting wet right now, but it's um, that's, you know, it's it's getting more common. That's for sure. Yeah, no, it was severe flooding. It was even to get to the walkways, you were still in calf, yeah. you know, like mid leg, you know, your calf was halfway flooded yeah. just well, to get to the to- walkway. Yeah, Yeah, they're welcome to climate change. Yeah, exactly. So that's why the boots were needed. And there were parts where I was very concerned that I didn't buy high enough boots. Like I didn't get them all the way to my knee and I should have. So that was that was bad. Well, you're a half hour train ride away from Padova, beautiful town that never has a flood because it's like Venice, but it's inland. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a you know, you got to roll with the punches. But, um, you know, there's uh, there's so much fun to have in Europe and uh uh, for me, uh, it's what I like to do is try to cut through the superlatives and help Americans plan a smart itinerary. And then through my guidebooks to be able to help them sort through all of the sightseeing to do and to know how to understand what they're looking at. And a big challenge for us, we have, I think we had 15 out of the top 20 American published guidebooks published in the United States for Europe had Rick Steves on the title when COVID hit. And I was so excited about how up to date and accurate our, our guidebooks were. And then for, for two years, all guidebooks are just mothballed and Europe is yeah. locked down. And this year it was all hands on deck. All of our researchers and co-authors, I spent two months, uh, 60 days in a row working on the books in the spring to get our guidebooks post COVID. And the, the thing that distinguishes a Rick Steves guidebook is connecting with the local people and not going to the big chain or the mm-hmm. high rise hotel that we all have frequent flyer approach to or whatever. But we want to find the mom and pop places, the little creative ventures, the the entrepreneurial labors of love. And these are the places that helped me fall in love with Europe. And I was so worried that two years of COVID with no revenue would kill these little places. And I thought I'd be going back in uh, after the pandemic, in other words, this year, just raking away the corpses of all sorts of dead businesses as I updated my guidebooks. And thankfully, the little, the little beautiful mom and pops that I love so much, the little cafes and bistros and bed and breakfasts and guest houses, they survived and uh, they're doing well. And now they're back at it. And uh, the energy is there. Uh-huh. You know, if you want to do the Paseo in Spain, if you want to lick your gelato on the piazza in Rome, if you want to do the passeggiata in Florence, where everybody's out strolling, if you want to clink big mugs of beer in Munich, or if you want to if you want to go to the pubs in Ireland where they say strangers are just friends who've yet to meet, or if you want to get your, your cheeks kissed in Paris, all that fun people energy is back. And that to me is the great news post COVID. Okay, wait, I do have a, this is a serious question. Are they still kissing on the cheeks in Paris after COVID? They are. Now they're not kissing the toe of St. Peter at St. Peter's in, in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. There are certain things <laughs> that you don't do for hygienic purposes anymore that you did before, but kissing on the cheek is not a contact sport. It's a little 
yeah, the, a little buzz it's an in air. The air outside it, of your cheek. Yeah, it's and, an air uh, kiss. It's a, it's a delightful thing, and uh, they're doing that. And uh, you know, the the main difference about COVID uh, that I've found is Europe has found that it makes sense to moderate the crowds by making people have an appointment, a timed reservation. Mm-hmm. So for the most crowded sites in Europe, Anne Frank's house, the Eiffel Tower, the Leaning Tower of Pisa the Uffizi Gallery, the Vatican Museum, you know, these must-see cultural obligations that everybody wants to do. It's so crowded that only people that make a reservation in advance get to do it. So I'm disinclined to go online and make a reservation. It just goes against my, you know, footloose and fancy free spirit of travel. But I've overcome that now, and I'm enthusiastic about making these online reservations because it's the only way to to get into these sites without waiting for hours and hours. So do that. And in fact, when I was updating my guidebooks uh, this year, I found that for each chapter, I wanted to have a little sidebar on the first page that says, what do you need to do as a reservation in advance to do Amsterdam smartly or Barcelona or whatever? You know, if you're going to Amsterdam, you should know without having to read the whole chapter that if you want to see Van Gogh, you got to have a reservation for that museum. If you want to see Rembrandt, the Night Watch and everything, you got to get a reservation for the Rijksmuseum. If you want to see Anne Frank's house, you got to have a reservation. There's a better museum called the Dutch Resistance Museum that nobody's there and it's wide open. But if you want to see Anne Frank's house like everybody does, you need a reservation. And a big thing in Europe now is if you want to go to a destination restaurant, one of the restaurants that I would recommend really highly, they're not necessarily expensive, they're just really popular and good, you should reserve one special restaurant dinner for every city you're going to in advance, or you'll be frustrated and you'll have to eat just at a forgettable place around the corner. So there's four things you need to reserve in Amsterdam. And then after that, you're wide open for everything else. If you know that, and if you're a good student and a guidebook helps you be a good student, a guidebook is a a $25 tool for a $4,000 experience. It pays for itself on the shuttle in from the airport. You know, if you're a good, diligent student, you will not wait in line and you will save a lot of time and a lot of money because you've you've done your due diligence. Why is it that you think so many Americans, because you and I actually agree on this one thing of staying away from the crowds, not going to where all the tourists go, but yet people are still going to where all the tourists go. Yep. Why do you think so many Americans are reticent to get off of the beaten path, so to speak? Well, you know, it's it's a little bit complicated. The the popular places, to a certain degree, are popular because they're best. Rotenburg is the best medieval town in Germany. Bruges is the best medieval town in Belgium. Uh, Paris is the greatest city in Europe. Edinburgh is a wonderful place. And when you go to Edinburgh, you want to go on the Royal Mile, the hike from the castle down to the palace. It's great. But everybody else does, too. In this day and age with social media, everybody's sharing. Everybody wants to do the same thing. So you got to decide, if I'm going to go to those places, how can I minimize the crowds? So I don't say don't go to the marquee destinations. I say go there smartly in a way where you minimize the crowds. And you can get a backdoor, what I call a backdoor approach, to a very popular destination like Rotenburg or Bruges or Paris or Barcelona you can actually stay in a place that is going to be a little bit in a in a cozy neighborhood that's not so touristy. Uh, you can visit things early or late, or you can go off season. You know, if you're in Rome and you go to the Pantheon in the middle of the day, all the cruise groups are there, and it's a mosh pit. But if you, I stay about a block away from the Pantheon in my favorite hotel in Rome, and I drop into the Pantheon, it's free. I drop in first thing in the morning or last thing in the day, 
And a lot of times I'm all alone in that pantheon, literally all alone. So uh, there are ways to enjoy getting around the crowds. And Heather, something I've been a big fan of lately is going to what I call second cities. Everybody's going to go to Edinburgh. What about Glasgow? Everybody's going to go to Paris. Sterling. I love Sterling. Sterling, a good idea. It's yeah. just half an hour away from Edinburgh on mm-hmm. the train, and you're there. Everybody goes to Lisbon. What about Porto? Everybody goes to Berlin and Munich. What about Hamburg? Every country I could I could la- name a second city. And of course, let's say you got three days for Edinburgh. Well, well, Edinburgh's great. You should have a couple days there. But that third day, you could get on the train for forty five minutes and go over to Glasgow because Glasgow is uh, just a gutsy, earthy, trendy edgy, colorful town with lots of entrepreneurial energy that you don't get in Ed- in Edinburgh. So be sure to uh, open yourself up to these industrial age kind of second cities. I just think they're wonderful. Thank you so much, Rick Steves. Again, you are an author, you're a TV host, you're a travel guru, and I know you mostly as the travel guru person. <laughs> I look forward to the newest PBS special, and I hope a lot of the listeners get a chance to tune in as well. Thank you so much, Heather. Delight to talk to you, and thanks for letting me share my enthusiasm for Rick Steves' Art of Europe. Thanks for listening. You can email me with any questions or topics you want to hear about at hkelly at ksl.com. That's h-k-e-l-l-y at ksl.com. And because this is Money Making Sense, you can subscribe for free on Spotify, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts, and you'll never miss another episode. Thanks for being a Money Making Sense listener. Follow your common sense on the social media, Money Making Sense, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.